Welcome to the Coog Center Podcast, and here's your host, Minshew, you got it. to the end zone, touchdown, <laughs> Desmond Patman, party on, Michael Preston. Still one of my favorite calls ever, uh, courtesy of Fox Sports and Tim Brando from last year's edition of the Washington State-Oregon game. That touchdown pass late in the fourth from Gardner Minshew to Desmond Patman in the back of the West End Zone at Martin Stadium. And just that explosion of noise, unlike anything uh, I'd heard in quite a while inside of Martin Stadium. Hoping for a repeat of that this coming Saturday, this time down in Eugene. Tom Gillis from Addicted to Quack going to join us to talk about the number 11 Oregon Ducks. Probably among the two best defenses Washington State has seen all year and arguably among the better offenses they've seen all year. There is a reason why this team is number 11 in the country. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, As always, I've done ahead of the week and asked Michael anything. We're also going to talk about kind of a weird little thing with conference realignment we saw come across our Twitter screen this week as well. Uh, As usual, though, uh, let's stick to talking about that last game against uh, Colorado. Boy, it rained a lot, didn't it? It was quite windy and quite quite rainy. I will admit, we left for um, my office after halftime. We, uh, because we had driven in from Pasco that day, so besides the fact that I wanted to make sure we could make it out of there, you know, relatively quickly, our friend who was uh, kind enough to drive for us, um, there was also the little problem of we'd gone out to Cougville to get a beer and I, I realized I was doing okay. Like on the wet and cold, I had Gore-Tex on and I'd layered up sufficiently enough that it wasn't really a problem in terms of temperature or rain for that matter at that point. Um, but then I stuck my hand out to hold on to the beer and my hand got soaking wet and then I got cold and then I couldn't dry it off and that, and that's what did it. But we were able to get to the bar in time to see the rest of the game. And I was able to watch the football in 60 version last night. And I think it confirmed for me kind of what I was thinking already in that that's probably the most complete game Washington State's played since Northern Colorado or New Mexico State. If you even really want to call those quote-unquote complete games against two teams that are clearly pretty inferior to them in most ways. So I, I would say... Definitely their most complete conference game of the year and arguably their most complete game of the year. Everything considered. The offense looked exactly like it should. I think it sputtered a little bit in parts of the half. But the defense really did truly play a lot better. Alex Fontenot was really the one big play threat he had. Um, A number of big plays averaged over nine yards a carry in that game. So that's not excellent. But you also consider he had a long rush of 25 yards. He had a couple other chunk plays, so they did stop him at times. And I realized that, you know, you got to include those long plays in here. But they still did a much better job of limiting those big plays, which was something we talked about. A long of 25 yards on the rush from Fontenot. Katie Nixon had a 29-yard reception, but I believe that was the flea flicker, if I remember right. So Colorado had to resort to a trick play to get that. And then LaVisca Chenault got a 24-yard reception. But for me, if the best LaVisca Chenault does is 24 yards and then three receptions for 32 yards otherwise, that's a pretty good day for me if you're the Washington State defense against LaVisca Chenault. 
because he's one of the more dynamic athletes in the conference when he's healthy. And clearly he was more healthy this weekend than he probably has been in a few weeks. So I think you saw the defense play much better. They sacked Steven Montez a couple of times. They got him moving. They got pressure on Montez, got him moving a little bit, which is, as we all know, is is his inherent weakness. And I think the team listens to the podcast because we had three interceptions. No, they don't listen to the podcast. But they did have one thing we talked about last week that I think is so key for this defense is turnovers and generating turnovers in the on the plus side of the field. George Hicks's interception was of course in the end zone, but Bryce Beekman's interception was in plus territory and ran it back close enough for I believe it was a field goal after no, it was a touchdown after that interception. They scored on three plays and it took them 26 yards. So I you know from that standpoint Awesome. Excuse me, it was Skylar Thomas with the pick. I don't want to assign that to the incorrect person. But uh, the defense played much better. The offense got off to that quick start. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown on three straight drives. Um, And to kind of give you an idea of, you know, that kind of all coalesced together in a way that we had talked about on this show. Jeff and Craig had talked about on Podcast versus Everyone of needing a quick start against Arizona State to really win that game and how it kind of sputtered and they didn't take as much advantage as they could. Washington State did that here. Touchdown, 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 downs, a punt, and then a field goal to end the half. Colorado missed field goal, interception, field goal, missed field goal, interception, punt, end of half. And I really don't get... It it, it was interesting to see Mel Tucker's decision on that first drive from the Washington State 31. I think it was a fourth and two. Fourth and a long two or fourth and three that he decided to kick a field goal in those conditions. And it seemed like he had the length, but you had to know, if you were Mel Tucker, that there is an offense on the other side of that football field that's going to move the football. And you can't be taking field goals the entire game. I would go so far as to say that even when they were down on the Washington State 7-yard line, and kicked a good field goal, you might as well consider going for that. And then again, from the Washington State 35, I think that was a much longer fourth down play, if I remember right, it was like fourth and 16 or 17. So they had kind of, I believe due to a penalty, they'd gotten themselves out of, you know, effective range to go for it there. But field goals weren't going to win that game. They just were not going to do that. And although the defense gave up more yards in the first half, Look at the drive charge in the second half, and I realize there were some backup quarterbacks on these ones, but 48 yards on Colorado's first possession, 51 on their second, negative 5 on the next one, then 0, 0, negative 3, and 25 on their final one. That's a defense that played better, much better in the second half, despite giving up the touchdown. So I think from that standpoint, uh, you can be pretty happy with that performance, and especially against an offense that at least by SP plus was much higher rated, I think, than kind of what we thought on their peripherals that they were because kind of everywhere else, it didn't really seem like they should be rated that high. But I'm going to take solace in the fact that that defense played that way against that offense. That at least you do know LaVisca Chenault, Alex Fontenot, Montez when he's accurate and not just throwing willy-nilly all over the place. Um, That is a good offense with some good talent on it. Jaron Mangum as well. So 
it to me it it says a lot about the improvement of the defense um, from week to week. I thought it was really interesting. You saw when Lavisca Schnault was on Marcus Strong's side of the field, they were moving. I think it was either Beekman or I think it was Thomas down to cover Chenault one-on-one and then bracketing him with Strong as well on the backside. So they were just not going to let Chenault kill them long, as they should not have. I mean, when you you have a team with an offensive powerhouse in one guy like that, that's exactly what you should do, especially in college. A lot of college teams just don't have the talent elsewhere to be able to, to kill you on offense somewhere else. So that's absolutely what you should do there. Offensively, Boy, is it nice to have Brandon Arcanado back. And I did not think I would say that at the beginning of the season. A former walk-on slot receiver. He had five catches for 109 yards, including just that gorgeous floated pass from Gordon to him for his touchdown on the day. Uh, Tay Martin finished with three catches for negative six yards and a touchdown. Never seen a weirder stat line in my life. (laughs) It's hard to find a weirder one than that, but... Clearly out of whatever doghouse he may have been in uh, with Mike Leach. And Max Borgie gets 21 touches on the day for 163 yards between his receptions and his rushes, including that just wrecking ball of a 47-yard run for the second touchdown uh, Washington State, or third touchdown Washington State scored. So uh, everybody who wanted Max Borgie to touch the ball more got their wish. 21 touches, far and away the most on the team, uh, the next closest was five between Arcanado and Aesop Winston. Both had five. So, yeah, he quadrupled the next closest person on the team in terms of number of time he touches it on offense. And, you know, it could just be because those checkdowns were there for Anthony Gordon. They were finding space for him, and he was finding some room to run in the rushing game. Frequently, though, he had those two big runs, and so you take those away, and again, I, you know, I kind of like realize we're doing it, you know, you can't really take them away, but he had about 10 rushes for 35 to 40 yards against a not great defense. That's a little on the worrying side to me still, that if they're going to be keying in on Max Borgie that much, you know, other teams are going to do that too, and he still probably has some work to do against obvious you know, fronts that are going to, you know, work to stop him. Maybe Anthony Gordon can help him out by not calling as many runs when there are six guys in the box and really and truly trying to do it when it's hat on hat. But, but Borgie's still got those explosive plays. And I know that he is, you know, thought of as like this best athlete on the team. I think he's a very good athlete. And I, I don't care what anybody says about him being so quick in the 100 and 200 in high school. I'm still surprised by his speed. But you have other very good athletes at receiver. And if those passes are there, frankly, that's where the football needs to be going. Those guys can work in space because if Borgie's not getting the ball in the flat, he's running the ball, and there's five or six defenders in the box right there. Frequently, receivers are working against one defender. And if they can find some room and they can break a tackle, you're talking about 10 extra yards, you know, five to 10 extra yards, hell, 20 yards sometimes. I remember Jameer Calvin down at Stanford last year. You have dynamic athletes all over this field. And I I worry that fans are getting too locked in on, you know, Max Borgie's got to touch the football all the freaking time. Because it has been a while since Washington State has had an athlete like this at running back. James Williams is as close as they've come. And he was here just last year. Can you imagine if he had chosen to stay? 
how how dynamic both these running backs would be. Jamal Morrow was arguably just as good as Max Borgie. But I still think Borgie edges him out by a little bit. Again, probably the best running back you've had since Jerome Harrison. But this offense is not predicated on handing the ball off and letting him rush it more or just always checking it down to the running back. Because although F gets most of the touches in this offense, you still need to spread the ball out 70% of the time to everybody else on the football field. And that is not what happened on Saturday. Besides the fact that Max Borgie got 12 rushes, he got 9 catches as well. Again, 21 touches of the football. So... He got 21 touches and everybody else, everybody else on the in terms of the receivers got 26. Deion McIntosh and Clay Markoff also got five rushes between them. So call it 30 for everybody else on the football field. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys split those. Those 30 touches. 3.1 per person, and Borgie had 21. That is way out of whack. That is way, 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 way out of whack. I, I, I get wanting Max Borgie to be the guy, but this week against Oregon, it is not going to be that way. They are very, very good up front. On that defense. And there's a reason why even after giving up 31 to Washington. There's still a top 10 defense by SP+. Again, one of the two best defenses Washington State will have seen all year. And in that Utah game, they Utah proved that they can bottle Max Borgie up. And they can force Anthony Gordon to throw. Against, you know, a team that's weaker up front. Maybe that works a little bit. But I don't want people to get so locked into Max Borgie's got to be the way forward on this. Because you have Brent, you have Aesop Winston, you have Travell Harris, you have Renard Bell, you have Des Patman, you have Tay Martin, you have Roderick Fisher. You would have Jameer Calvin if he was healthy. I don't know what's going on with him, but if he was healthy, you would have him. There are athletes all over this field. And how often have we talked about this being the best receiving core Mike Leach has had since he's been at Washington State? So why not take advantage of that? That these guys exist and are very good with the football in open space. I get how intoxicating it is to want to give it to the kid who breaks these big plays. But just as often these other these receivers are doing it too and I get that a lot of it is on passes and they're open and so all you see is the pass landing in Brandon Arcanado's lap and he's got to run 10 yards into the end zone and Borgie's bouncing off defenders and going 50 yards and then dragging one in to pay dirt but there are really great athletes all over the place and you can bet Oregon has much better athletes on defense than Colorado does and they're going to be more keyed in on Borgie than Colorado will be because Colorado couldn't afford to just sit down and, you know, assign a man to Borgie or sit in zone and sit in the flat or in the check down spot in front of the center, five yards in front of the center. They can't afford to do that. Oregon can. So you're going to see the ball spread around a little bit more. And you're going to need to see it spread around a little bit more, especially against this football team. If you want to have a chance to beat Oregon five in a row, it's got to go to the receivers more. 
And Oregon's a dang good football team, and you're walking into Autzen Stadium, and at this point, I think you're playing a pretty motivated Ducks squad. Kevin Dudley in our Slack chat pointed out, no one on that roster, coaches included, has beaten Washington State. Not one single solitary human being. Might not include the coaches, I forget about that, but definitely the players. None of them have beat Wazoo. And you know after beating Washington for the second year in a row that they are going to be motivated to assert themselves in the Pacific Northwest as the dominant football team. They do not want to lose to little old Washington State for a fifth year in a row. This is roughly equivalent to that 2015 game. Oregon's not quite that good, not wasn't that good back then. But it's a Washington State team that might be able to jump up and get you. And my thought would be they're going to take it a little bit more seriously than they did back then. Tom Gillis from AddictedToQuack.com here to talk about the Ducks coming up after this commercial break. Back here on the Coog Center Hour, we're going to check in now with... What are like It's like top 15 ranked, top 10 ranked. Everybody saw this coming at the beginning of the year, I think. Tom Gillis from Addicted to Quack, our sister site that covers... The Oregon Ducks. Uh, first, Tom, I want to say, I think I speak for most Washington State Cougars fans when I say thank you so very, very much for last weekend. It really was just a true pleasure uh, watching the end of that football game. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I can say that it was really no uh, no problem at all for uh, for us to, to do that for you. <laughs> Easiest favor you'll ever do me. And now we go to disliking each other for the week and then whatever else. But we both hate UW. That's the important thing. Uh, (laughs) Through this point in the season, Tom, I think pretty much uh, exactly how we expected things to go. Maybe a win against Auburn in that neutral sider to start the season. But other than that, I mean, you know, good comeback win against UW on Saturday. But things have gone pretty much on schedule so far. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, that's fair to say. Um, I think coming into the season, uh, Bill Connolly, his S&P Plus, had us um, favored in uh, every game but the Auburn game and the Washington game. Mm-hmm. And so far, we've uh, we've kind of been 50% on the games that we're supposed to lose. But yeah, we're pretty much smooth sailing from here on out, I believe. Yeah. I, yeah, you got Washington State here this week. USC, maybe the hardest game left on the schedule of Arizona State's number 24 in the country uh, later on. Uh, Justin Herbert, I mean, we saw him last year in Pullman. Looked impressive in that second half against the Cougs. Not so much in the first half, but then again, it was a struggle for Oregon until the third quarter um, in that football game. How has he looked to Oregon fans so far this year? I mean, I can just look at his... You know, counting stats, and they're very impressive. 21 touchdowns to one pick. He's averaging eight yards per attempt. Does he look every bit that impressive stat line so far? Um, you know, it depends on who you ask. Okay. Um, some of, the, uh, some of the, the true fans are really excited about him, and they say, hey, well, at least he's keeping the Ws in the right column. Um, but there's been a lot, of, a lot of criticism right now about uh, his... Uh, decision making and his his accuracy Mm -hmm. uh last year he was taking a little bit more risk and getting a little bit more reward and he for some reason has taken a little step back in his uh risk assessment uh actually probably be better to say he's been a little bit more conservative 
in his decision making and um it's paid off in as much as he only has one interception this year but there are a lot of times where um it looks like he's uh either afraid to 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 run out of the pocket or he is hesitant to try to throw his receivers open but um you know his it's it's working out so far and that's probably more due to the play calling than it is uh, about his ability. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this last game at Washington kind of put him back into the uh, uh, the Heisman caliber quarterback conversation because he obviously he fell out of that after the Auburn game. Right. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. Our feelings about Herbert down here. Yeah. Very impressive stat line, as you mentioned, though. He probably, I think the thought is he leaves after this year, correct? Because he is a junior, so and he's probably going to be a top 10 pick. So this is probably the last year with him. How comfortable are Duck fans right now with uh, the quarterbacks that are behind him uh, for 2020 and beyond? Uh, well, Herbert is a senior, I believe, oh, sorry, this year. Senior, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so he's going He's going no matter what, then. My apologies. So he's, he's gone no matter what. He is currently projected as the, uh, the second quarterback on the board uh behind Tua uh to come out this year and uh from and Eason are close behind him and Joe Burrow is blazing right uh, up the charts yeah um but you know so far uh from what we've seen of uh Tyler Shuck uh we like him um he's come out and not really skipped a beat as far as um his ability and um, his moxie, his pocket presence. Uh, he doesn't look like a redshirt freshman quarterback when he's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's kind of difficult to say now because he's only had to come in, I think, for one pass when Herbert was uh, was injured for uh, during the Auburn game. So yeah. we don't really have a good, like, true game time film on Shuck. He came on for the... the the final of the Colorado game for a good uh, chunk, and he's kind of come in in garbage times and in other games. But uh, uh, me personally, I am confident that uh, Chuck will be able to come mm-hmm. in and take the concept that Cristobal is starting to form with his offense and and run with it. Yep. Uh, one thing I think that, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a throwback to Oregon of the good old days for me is you have three running backs on this football team who are averaging over four yards a carry with getting regular carries. Darian Felix has over six yards a carry, but really it's Cyrus Habibi Likio, I think is how you say his last name. He's a former Wazoo commit um, as well. Travis Dye and CJ Verdell as well. That's a bit of a throwback to really the good Oregon days. Um, does each one of these guys kind of bring something different to the table, or is it really just we've got three running backs who are really good, so they're all going to play? Uh, well, uh, C.J. Verdell is obviously like the the starting running back. He's the the all purpose guy. He's mm-hmm. the uh, um, I like to say he's the uh, jack of all trades, master of none. He can he's like uh, he's very good at, at receiving the ball out of the backfield. He's very good at running up the middle. He's very good at um, at screen routes or uh, like halfback option plays, but uh, when you, the further down the depth chart you go, the further uh, the more specialization we go. Like uh, Habibi Likio, he is the uh, the big power run up the middle back usually, 
Um, Travis Dye, he's a change of pace back. I think he's a better catcher out of the backfield than mm-hmm. uh, any other guys that we have. Um, and Darian Felix, I just love watching that guy run. I mean, like, no matter what he's doing, um, he's just so athletic and so shifty. And uh, I have taken a lot of flack for comparing him to um, to DeAnthony Thomas mm-hmm. um, because DeAnthony Thomas had uh, a better change of change of direction speed, but I've seen a couple of plays where Darian Felix just takes the ball, skips to the right, and then he's a hundred miles an hour down the field and you can't catch him. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, our big running back recruit, uh, Sean dollars, uh, he's come in a couple of times and shown flashes of brilliance. Um, he kind of reminds me, uh, a little bit of, um, of Thomas Tyner, uh, okay. back in the day, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the he's he's the next guy up in a lot of people's eyes is the the uh, the feature back in maybe a year or two. Well, if the next guy up is Thomas Tyner, I think you'd be pretty happy with that. Uh, <laughs> receiving wise, uh, Jacob Breland obviously uh, out for the season uh, with a left knee injury, so that was um, kind of like the number one guy. He's still the leading receiver on the team after that game against Washington, I believe. If uh, Sports Reference has actually caught up with that. Um, so who, who do you lean on now in the receiving game if you are Oregon? Because you, you lose kind of the number one target for Justin Herbert. So who, who is kind of like the guy that Washington State needs to worry about most now that Breland's not there? Well, I hope they're not listening to this. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, we get so many listeners. I can't, I, you know, I can't be held responsible if these boys are listening to it on their way to and from class. I hope they are. <laughs> All right. Um... Uh, Jalen Red is a touchdown threat every time he touches the ball. Um, a guy that is kind of get uh, not really getting a lot of press because he was injured the first couple of, of games is the Penn State transfer, Juwan Johnson. Um, he's a big, tall guy, uh, 6'4", 230. And um, if we're looking for a red zone threat to kind of take over where Breland left off, uh, he's our guy. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh, Johnny Johnson the third seems to have developed just a really great chemistry with um, Justin Herbert. And so between those three guys, um, those are your probably uh, your biggest threats going into this game. But then we have uh, kind of like Washington State does, um, just probably another seven or eight guys, whether they're tight end, running back, wide receivers, mm-hmm. down the chart that can do things with the ball. Like I, you look at Ryan Bay, who's um, – uh, traditionally just a blocking back, but he's caught a couple of big passes uh, this year. Brendan Schooler, the converted safety, he's put up some big catches this year. Um, David Davis, who is a converted cornerback, also has stepped up uh, when called on when we our wide receiver depth was, was down. And uh, Micah Pittman just seems to catch everything that's thrown his way. Mm-hmm. Um, he's another guy that was held, held out of the first couple of weeks due to injury, but um, when he, his first game out, I think he caught four, the four balls that were thrown to him and it were just right over the middle. And it's almost like he didn't have to work on catching the ball. He just stuck to his chest and he held on. So it's, it's really anybody's game. Uh, I don't think that Oregon has had, uh, besides Breland, any one player lead the team in receiving back to back games. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's whoever, was not covered 
essentially. <laughs> it's going to be the guy you have to worry about. Well, the guy say, who's yeah. covered. It's the same thing in Washington State then. Uh, defensively for Oregon, uh, they were in the top five of SP Plus coming into that game against Washington. I think with that quick update uh, right before here, it's still number eight in the country after giving up 31 uh, to Washington. So certainly a very impressive uh, side of the football, Tom. And they're led by a guy who I think is on his 19th year of eligibility, Troy Dye at linebacker, who's got five and a half tackles for a loss and a sack on the year, leads the team in tackles. Um, the superlatives of this guy, probably hard to fit them all in uh, when talking about him, but go ahead and give me a, give it a shot for me. What makes, what, what like one thing really makes Troy die like this really special linebacker for the Ducks? Well, uh, if you would have asked me that last week, I would have been hard-pressed to give you one thing but after watching him at this game, um, I would say his his toughness and his ability to to lead the defense, not only with his words, but with his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, just one of those leaders that is like, hey, I won't ask you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. But he can already do so much um, that when you just watch him play, it's inspiring. And mm-hmm. in Washington, at the end of the half, end of the first half, he broke his thumb, had a compound fracture on his thumb oh god uh went back into the locker room at halftime got it uh bandaged up and uh cast hold on and then whoa 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 whoa! a compound fracture on his thumb at halftime in the washington game and he continued to play yeah like he had blood all over his uniform and everything it was it was impressive oh my god (laughs) and then he he comes back in uh on the field on the second half he's got a cast on his arm and ends up breaking the cast in the game so i mean this guy just would run through a brick wall not only for uh for the team but for his teammates and like when you have a guy on the field that um is as talented as he is and as determined as he is it really elevates everybody else around him yeah my god that i am i'd be laid up for a week and a half not, no, oh no, that's not even fair. I'd be laid up for a month and a half with that. That's okay. Besides being able to play with a bone out of skin, what else makes this defense so good? You look up and down uh, the stat sheet. Uh, over two dozen passes defended. Um, tons of picks. Lots of uh, not as many forced fumbles, but when you get that many picks, I suppose it doesn't matter. They're in the backfield a ton as well is there like any other one thing this defense does really well above anything else as a unit as a unit our ability to put pressure on the quarterback is unmatched mm-hmm. um i don't think i've seen anybody outside of um auburn lsu and uh alabama really and this is a kind of a down year for Alabama, even as defensively, mm-hmm. uh, that has been able to consistently put pressure on the quarterback every single time. Uh, they've got the, the big guy in the middle, Jordan Scott, who looks like a stereotypical SEC defensive tackle, who his job is just to stand up and hold as many offensive linemen as he as he can. And I'll hold, <laughs> like, like I, I once saw him or at the Stanford game, he took on a triple team all by himself. And what that does is that allows... The other guys, um, like uh, Javon Holland and um, uh, Mace Funa uh, and uh, Kayvon Thibodeau to get around and to get that pressure on the quarterback. 
and then when the uh, the pressure, maybe we have that much pressure on the quarterback, it makes it easy for our defensive backs to be able to do things like get interceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's our defensive backs have been playing a lot the last couple of years. Um, they, I think, Thomas Graham and uh, Jamador Lenore both started as freshmen. And that was a that was a couple of years ago, and they've just like have all that experience underneath their belt. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, Javon Holland is one of the most athletic defensive backs uh, in the entire NCAA. Just what he can do reminds me a lot of um, uh, shoot, who's that guy from Alabama? Uh, reminds, reminds me a lot of Mark Barron oh, the way yeah, he plays yeah. mm-hmm. as like a like a sort of nickel corner sort of safety sort of outside linebacker and um just he could spot a play on the opposite side of the field and be there like uh, in two seconds and hit the guy as hard as he can Mm -hmm. uh one thing i want to touch on because i know obviously oregon's uh you know number 11 in the country they're a very very good football team but if there was one thing you had to pick that you wish they could do better on either side of the football what would it be what's what's kind of like the one weakness you see that you go this really needs to get better if Oregon wants to have a chance at sniffing the CFP or just for Duck fans to feel more comfortable about this being a truly complete football team. I would say it would come down to creativity and play calling, especially when we get up. Uh, we kind of take our foot off the gas and mm-hmm. just coast the rest of the way into the game. We saw that uh, kind of hurt us, especially at Auburn. And... Um, kind of a little bit there um at uh stanford um and then our creativity in the run game it seems like we have two or three running plays that we run every single time Mm -hmm. but we have an offensive line that has the ability that gives us the freedom to be able to run those plays consistently regardless of whatever the defense does so it's to answer your question that's the big thing that uh we as as fans uh, are the most nervous about right now. Tom Gillis from AddictedToQuack.com. Thank you for lending your expertise about the Ducks, sir. We appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be here. Back here on the Kook Center Hour, thanks again to Tom Gillis for joining us to talk about the Oregon Ducks. Um, I saw an interesting little thingy-mabob uh, pop up on Kook Center from, or on Kook Center, on Twitter from Swaim Sports. Greg Swaim, I don't know, G Swaim, I don't know. Yeah, gregswaim.com uh, has a large following. Apparently, uh, the highest rated national recruiting exposure events. Something. Always oh, an award winner in radio and TV, too. Um, at PAC or Big 12 Media Days, uh, apparently some rumors circulating around that Arizona State and Arizona would like to leave the PAC 12 for the Big 12 uh, for central time zone games and more national exposure. <sighs> okay. Um, look. Here's the deal. I know it's hard to speculate about conference realignment. I get that. Because none of us really saw coming what happened in 2010 through about 2012. Remember that year Boise State was like kind of in the Big East? You remember that? 
That was fun, wasn't it? So I understand that it's hard to look that far ahead and, you know, see into the future like that. But besides the fact that Arizona and Arizona State for eight months a year would be two hours behind most of the people in the Central or in the Big 12 in the Central time zone. And then for that other four months of the year, they would still be an hour behind them. Uh, why in God's name would Arizona and Arizona State leave for the Big 12? I mean that legitimately. Because in basketball, while the Big 12 is certainly a much better conference right now, and it is better in slightly in football as well, owed largely to Oklahoma mowing down pretty much anybody in their path. I'm not convinced whatsoever it would be a very smart move for Arizona, besides the fact that the geographic footprint of that conference would stretch from West Virginia to Arizona. Arizona's in a conference right now with Stanford, UCLA, USC, Cal, and Washington. And all the rest of the schools academically are pretty darn good as well. I don't look at the Big 12, which has a private religiously affiliated institution in Baylor. And think, oh yeah, that's definitely someplace Arizona and Arizona State would want to go. It strikes me as odd that the Big 12 would want to try to poach teams from the Pac-12. I don't know that their TV deal is any better than the Pac-12's is actually money-wise. It is merely better because they have fewer teams to split it between. And adding into that fact, Texas still has the Longhorn Network and do Arizona and Arizona State really want to leave for a conference where one team has so much control over everything, where one university can kind of puff out their chest, say we have the Longhorn Network, and we don't really care about anything else. Granted, USC is kind of that way, but at least there are 11 other institutions in this conference that hold them in check at least sometimes. If there was one great thing Bill Moose did for Washington State, it was basically get USC to bend the knee, so to speak, on the revenue splitting from the TV contract. He got everybody on board with that. So if little old Washington State's AD can get USC to kind of conform to their will, so to speak, why would Arizona State and Arizona be worried about that? But Texas is an entirely different animal. That's an entirely different equation. When you're looking at that. You can't tell me that they want to go into a conference where one team has that much power. You add in the fact that there's the time difference. There's the academic issues. And why would they want to leave? I mean, that's not even owing to the fact that You know, again, there's the travel issues. And I also forgot Texas Christians in that conference. So again, a private religiously affiliated institution. Not something they may want to do. So it's it's an odd, you know, like hearing rumors about it. They might dump the Pac-12. Besides the fact that TV contracts probably aren't up at the same time, my assumption would be. 
I don't see... What does that exposure do for you if you're Arizona or Arizona State? What does that do for you? You're a little closer to the Eastern time zone? Great. Right now, Arizona's basketball program is getting attention for all the wrong reasons. Arizona State under Bobby Hurley is being built up, but I think the Pac-12 is actually going to be better in basketball this year. So what's the motivation? I think the problem is, is that the Big 12 is largely out of options when it comes to adding teams because they don't want to add, or they would love to add Houston, but TCU, Texas, Texas Tech, and Baylor are not going to want another team in Texas in that conference. So you're probably largely left with looking to Boise State, San Diego State, UNLV, Memphis. That's really about it. You're probably not going to want to add San Diego State and UNLV for the geographic issue. Same goes for Boise State. So really, it's Memphis and Houston. But since your big puffed out chest member is not going to want Houston in the conference and the other three probably won't either you're left with the option of you obviously need two teams to join it's Memphis and who okay so now you got to go find two to jump in and it's Arizona and Arizona State but I'm not entirely convinced that they are a better option than say Utah or Colorado but my thinking is is that and again, it's, it's a bit of a leap here, but I'm willing to make it. That if the current members of this conference have not gotten rid of Larry Scott and their presidents have not voted to at least... They did place a little bit more accountability with them. I can't remember exactly what that vote was for earlier this summer, but they will be keeping... A, the ADs will be keeping a little bit closer eye on the business of the conference. I can't imagine that their dissatisfaction is so deep that they would jump to the Big 12. And again, we're not even talking about anything happening for another four years. And maybe this thought isn't as formed as it could be in my head. But to me, it just seems absurd that you would leave the Big, the Pac-12 for the Big 12 right now. For all those reasons I listed. It just, to me, it, the exposure, I mean, there's not much more in the Big 12 and there's still a time difference and the academics are not even close to the same. You have the religious institutions, which Arizona's the Arizonas haven't had to deal with in the Pac-12. And frankly, they've been in the conference since, I think, what, 1972? They are longstanding members now. Do you want to leave your home of the last 50-some-odd years? I think the answer to that is probably no. You don't. Probably not a good move. But it's a rumor, and we're hearing it at Big 12 Media Days. Circulating. It could happen. It's like I, like every... Like, like somebody said something at the breakfast buffet near the bacon station. I have a feeling that's what it was. But it gives us cont hashtag content to talk about on this podcast because it's a stupid... Stupid thing for the Arizona schools to do. But look at that. I got over nine minutes out of it. Dunderhead of the week. Ask Michael anything. Coming up next here on the Week Center.
Dunderhead of the Week. As I mentioned, we stayed in Pasco uh, for this game. We stayed with a friend there. It was nice enough to drive us, uh, be the driver, allow me to have a couple of extra IPAs uh, while in Pullman. But after we turned onto Highway 26 in Washtucna, um, we were unfortunately behind a gentleman driving a pickup truck, towing another car with, you know, one of those U-Haul rental trailers. And by the time we got to Colfax and were able to pass him on Airport Road, he had, and I'm not kidding, I counted behind us, including you know, from behind him to us and then behind us, 20 cars behind him. And he was going anywhere from 65 to 40 miles an hour, depending on, I don't know, his mood at the time. Here's the deal. Delay of five cars or more, you got to pull over. Now, I can generally accept that most people don't know to do that, and there aren't a lot of great places to do it between Washtucna and Colfax. However, there are still plenty of places where you can do it and straightaways where you can pull over to at least make some room for people to pass you. Two dozen cars behind you waiting to get to Pullman. You are delaying them getting to Pullman. And what you could do is just pull over so we can get to Pullman. I just like, when I'm on the road, I just want to get there. Like, I'm so anxious, I want to get there, I want to so anxious. I mean, I get a little angry, but pull over. Delay of five cars more. If you're delaying that many cars, pull over. I can accept that it's going to take you a little while to find a spot, but in 67 miles, you can find a spot. Or however far it is, Colfax, like 51 from Washington, whatever. Pull over. One time. Especially in du right there, in Dusty. There's that little rest stop right there. Pull over. Let everybody pass you. Be courteous. It's not difficult. We're not going to make other big grandiose societal, you know, uh, riffs here. Just pull over if you're going slow. It's not hard. Ask Michael anything time. Once drove one of those box trucks towing a car, too. Bet your butt I stayed in the right lane most of the time, I think. At Ben Wyman. Ben Wyman, I just got engaged. Congratulations. So in true Mike Leach fashion, give me your best advice for being engaged and planning a wedding. Uh, ben, when I was engaged in quote-unquote planning my wedding, uh, I lived in Centralia and my wife lived in Kirkland. And it was great. Just because for me, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I didn't care too terribly much about the details of the day you know I don't, I'm not trying to be stereotypical here it just was not something I had too much of a care for she cared very much about it she presented me with options on the weekends when we were able to see each other and we discussed from there so if it's something that you don't care too much about just kind of stay out of the way allow the planning to take place support when you are able to and you'll be good to go that would be my big thing and always no matter what because there's going to be issues between the families. You are on your fiancé's side. You are on your fiancé's side no matter what. Just period, end of sentence. At WSU Cougar 08, Rick, which WSU coach is most likely to be poached by Oregon football this offseason? What is it, four the last four offseasons? Hmm. I'll go with Steve Spurrier Jr. Even though he said at the coach's luncheon before the New Mexico State game he wouldn't. 
but that just seems most likely. Why not? MP Cornwell 09, Patrick Cornwell, Chipotle or Qdoba, whichever you choose, you must have the queso with it. In that case, I am choosing Qdoba because their queso is second to none. We're flying to North Carolina this week. Uh, and our flight leaves at like 8 in the morning. And if you don't think I'm not getting breakfast nachos at the SeaTac Qdoba, you are sorely mistaken, my friend. You did not ask, but I am getting breakfast nachos. And my wife will judge me, but I like breakfast nachos. They are delicious. At JM Cal, J Mackle, Jordan McGrath. Jordan, I don't want to say it. Did you know today is International Caps Locks Day? Not the greatest question, but I feel like you need to know. I did need to know that. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you very much. At the last zoom, Max Corgi. Where can I get sweet potato tachos? Hmm. No, I'm not much of a sweet potato fry guy, though. I don't really, I don't really care for them too much. I don't know. I just, I, I like the, I like sweet potatoes. Like at Thanksgiving, I like sweet potatoes. I just don't like the fries very much. I don't know. It's just like a texture thing, maybe. I don't know. Nothing's really that different. At so to sum up, I don't know where, but regular tacho should suffice for you. If we beat Oregon this weekend from CQ8606, Sean, will we see a patented pants on the ground pick again? Uh, it'll be two in the morning where I am when that game finishes. It'll just be a picture of me sleeping, probably. Right as, right as the game finishes, I'm just going to pass out on the couch. At dwittig 33 Dustin Wittig, worst weather game of any sport you've attended. Wow. Hmm. I can't remember like a bad baseball game because you know I've gone to games in Seattle my entire life. I haven't been to a bad weather Seahawks game. Yeah, I would say the worst weather sporting event I've ever been to was the 2007 Washington State game against or, or against Oregon State. I am still wet from that game. Like my bones got wet. That's how much it was raining in that game. That was just horrid weather and I stayed the whole game I have no idea why I did that no freaking clue why I did that Oregon 41 Washington State 28 it's a little too much firepower with Oregon defense a little too good to overcome and you got to go on the road and do it wish I had a different answer for you but by after this weekend we will have a show next week a shortened up show like we usually do for the bye week but if you're heading to Eugene have a great time I hope I can stay awake for the entire game here on the Cook Center Hour. Have a good week, guys.